suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. We're back for another episode. Welcome back, dear listener. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. We're going to talk about news and politics and sex and religion. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. With me, as always, streaming in from regional Queensland, Scott the Velvet Glove. How are you, Scott? Really well, thanks. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Joe. G'day, listeners. I hope you're all well. And Joe, the tech guy, has got all the lights and whistles humming along. So far, so good. Welcome aboard again, Joe. Evening, all. Mm. Oh, and hello in the chat room already. Tanya's there. Alison's there with her mum, Bev. Hello. <laughs> hey, if you wonder what we talk about prior to sort of pressing the go button, the answer is we talk about our medical ailments because we're at an age where <laughs> just things are going wrong and Joe's going to have a camera stuck up his bottom and Scott's just had an infusion for his chronic illness. I've had stitches in my back to have a cyst cut out and we're just comparing our, our old man um, ailments and injuries as we go along. So. That's what we get to up to when mm -hmm. we're preparing for the podcast. Anyway, if you're in the chat room, say hello. Anne's there as well. Hello, Anne. Right. So what's on the agenda tonight? Well, we need to talk about Ben Robert Smith and that case and what it means. And also just the reaction of some of the right-wing media like Sky News to the decision. Incredibly, he's got sympathizers out there. What do you have to do? But we'll talk about that in a moment. You have to be and a war hero. Yes. I'm going to talk about some good news on the religious instruction front, some Labor Party policy stuff. So some good news there. And probably talk a little bit about China as well, a bit down the track. So anyway, before we get into the meat of it, just wanted to say a bit of an apology for last week for the people listening to the audio of the episode, because in it, we had our segment with the Governor-General's wife singing a song. I forget which one it was. This is and the one she was singing about palliative care, wasn't she? Yes, I think so. I think that yeah. was one. Anyway, on the audio that you would have got on the podcast, it was very, very intermittent and didn't play. It hardly played any different thing at all. You could, you could hear one or two words. And I think this is what's happened. That was a lucky is, escape for most people. Yes. Well, <laughs> I run the audio through a, a program called Descript, and it's got this thing in it where it takes away all of the background noise and it pumps up the sort of voices and makes them a little bit nicer, a little bit stronger. And anyway, when it gets rid of background noise, it's essentially getting rid of stuff that it thinks is shit and just shouldn't be in the audio. And lo and behold, it virtually erased 90% of her singing. And that was done automatically by this audio program. So, Well, AI so, hates it too. 
So for those listening to the recorded one, you missed out. Sorry about that. I'll, anyway. I'll have to remember that in future so that I can pump my audio through that. Yes. So that was that. Deep Throat upgraded his Patreon pledge. Thanks for that, Deep Throat. And got some feedback during the week from a, I think it was a patron. I can't remember the person's name, but it was another great episode, Mr. Fist. I had a few chuckles, learned a thing or two, but for the second time ever, I'm disagreeing with you. You've sold me on China being no worse than America, but Russia is another matter entirely. Finland is a clear example of the best way to negotiate with Russian aggression. Make them pay as dear a cost as possible, and hopefully you'll do better than the countries who relied on the mercy of a cold dictator's heart. Looking forward to the next episode as always. There we go. That's and actually, feedback. you got that wrong. It was Mr. First. Well, he did write Mr. First, but I'm sure. Maybe he did mean Mr. First. Yeah, or maybe. maybe he meant Mr. Fist. Yes. He right. meant Mr. Fist, but anyway. Mm, anyway. We're going to talk a bit about China a bit later on because I found the perfect China expert to back up everything I've been saying. Mm -hmm. So we can look forward to that. So, so you're saying you're using a bit of, what was it, positive reinforcement? Yeah. yeah. yeah I've, got, I've got the China expert, I think, with this guy. So, and, and, and the reason he's the China expert is because he agrees with you? No, I'll, I'll give his credentials. Okay. And, and I think he'll agree with me. So anyway, that'll be towards the end. <clears throat> now, Ben Robert Smith. So, Judge found that the newspapers established, on the balance of probabilities, which we'll get into, the substantial truth of their imputations that he was a murderer and a bully who had disgraced his country. That had result for Ben Robert Smith and turns out basically the judge believed the witnesses who said that Ben Robert Smith was pushed a, a handcuffed bully. man Ooh. down a hill and then... Ordered uh, someone else to shoot him. Yes. Well, there was certainly some incriminating stuff around the witness tampering, wasn't there? Yes, and also witness intimidation and mm -hmm. other stuff going on. So very damning for him. Not surprising when you sort of looked at the case. What really was of interest was, I mean, the SAS soldiers are a tight group. Like you, you don't get any tighter than an SAS group. And for those guys to turn on him and testify against him, yeah, I mean, my understanding is there is a lot of infighting, mm. but there is external cohesion. Mm. Yes. For them to, to come forward and testify against him, it's pretty extraordinary, really. So anyway, who knows what will happen to like? I, I was going to say what will happen to him. He's going to get a job on Sky News do, do as, you a, remember? as a presenter. Do you remember a Noosa Templar Satan dinner we had up at Noosa? Yes. Somebody yes. turned up who was an ex-wife of one of Ben yes. Robert Smith's. Robert. Yeah. Yes. And was effect essentially saying that, yes, it was true, nothing surprised them, and they'd heard similar stories. Yes. Particularly, particularly about the prosthetic limb, I think. Yes. Was she a policewoman? Possibly. I can't remember. Yeah. I thought about her later and I thought, I wonder if she was planted by the prosecution to go along and see what we talked about. So mm. it was possible, I think, with her. Don't know. So 
Well, there was um, also an AFP who turned up at one of the meets. Do you remember? No. But when anyway. we met, met in the valley or in Brisbane somewhere. Was he? Yeah, a guy turned up and he was from the federal police. Yeah. So, not sure. <clears throat> anyway, where does a guy like that go? And I joked before that, well, Scott, the War Memorial currently has a Ben Robert Smith display. Mm. And ben Robert Smith currently holds the Victoria Cross. Do you he think does. anything should happen in respect of those two things? I think it all depends on what happens with the war crimes that they're, that they're investigating him for. If he is actually charged and if he's convicted on that sort of thing, then I think they should at least strip him of the medal. I think that the Victoria Cross should be taken off him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think the War Memorial will be quite within its rights to possibly maintain its, it depends how vindictive they want to be. If they don't wish to be vindictive, then I think they should pull him, pull him out and throw, throw his uniforms in the boxes. If they wanted to be vindictive, then I would keep the display there, but actually write something up about the, uh, write something up about what he'd actually done. And then mm. they could have something there that said this man was accused and found guilty of these crimes. If and it was a true war memorial. Exactly, they would do that. That is what mm-hmm. they would do, is mm. they would say, here's a display of the disgraced Ben Robert Smith. Here is what he did. This is what our troops have been guilty of. And shame, shame, shame. But that's never going to happen in this war memorial because it's run to glorify war in the sense of they've turned it into almost a, well, they're turning it into a, a theme park attraction, loading in boys' toys of all sorts in there for people to marvel at military weapons and ooh and ah over shiny metal killing machines. So ideally, keep the display, but use it as a true sort of teaching tool that it's not all all fun and games in war and Australia's guilty of of some atrocities thanks to Ben Robert Smith, but it'll never mm. happen. We're no, incapable of we're incapable of that honesty. No, that's right. And you know, I tend to go into any country's war memorials wherever I go. So I've been to I've been to the Swedish one. And that right. was very interesting. And they they did have a very valid look at their peacekeeping forces. They said that, you know, their peacekeeping forces involved in somewhere in Africa were accused, were credibly accused of rape and that type of thing, which they openly admitted to. Okay, good. You know, which is something that Mm. I thought at the time we could learn from that sort of, you know, there was never a Ben Robert Smiths out there at the time, but I thought to myself, you know, there could be one of our guys doing something like that in the future. And I think that if, if they are ever accused of it credibly, then I think it's probably something we should uh, recognize. I think there's enough evidence at this point that they should, should pull down the glorifying Ben Robert Smith sort of display that they've got there. Yeah. Put it in a storage place and say, we'll wait the outcome of further investigations mm-hmm. and decide what we're going to do. But there's enough evidence on the ground now that we can safely say we should, in all good conscience, not display him. And, uh, and then there should must be you know, some sort of 
war crimes hearing of some sort is going to investigate this guy and uh, and his colleagues. Yes, indeed. Well, I thought there had been I thought there had been something that was started and that there were three of them that were under investigation right now, wasn't there? Mm. I don't know what's under investigation. So John in the chat room asks, can you take a VC back? And Bronwyn says there are precedents for a VC to be taken away, but they all happened a long time well, ago. He's put his up for collateral, so. Yes. It, to cover his costs. Yes. Potentially. Well, yeah. It's, it's valued at $2 million, but he's got a, he's potentially facing a, a, a cost order of $35 million. So one wonders whether it's worth less or is it worth more? As a result of all this. Yeah, that's that a work? good point. I don't know. Mm. You know that the Victoria Cross medals are all made out of a single piece of brass that was recovered from the guns during the Crimean um, War. Crimean War, yeah. Mm. Now that you mention it, I do vaguely remember some story like that. Yeah. Hmm. There we go. So, Ben Robert Smith. But, I mean, let's just... Quickly, just some of the detail. So it was ultimately proved that Robert Smith kicked an unarmed and handcuffed Afghan man off a cliff. His landing was so rough it knocked his teeth out and he directed a soldier under his command to shoot that man. He was also found to have pressured an inexperienced SAS soldier to murder an unarmed and elderly Afghan man in a tunnel. And the judge said the newspapers had established that Robert Smith murdered a man with a prosthetic leg with a machine gun in the same tunnel and kept the leg as a novelty drinking vessel. And he still has his supporters, mm. incredibly, thanks to an article in Crikey, where they actually must pay somebody to watch Sky News and see what they're up to. And... Peter Credlin is leading the charge to to support the good name of mm -hmm. Robert Smith. Oh, incidentally, just back on. Jesus Christ, is that Corey Bernardi? Corey Bernardi as well, yeah. Oh, yeah. bloody hell. So I know. Actually, just before I get on to them, just on the balance of probabilities, apparently, well, there was a couple of things. There was some allegation about the, from the wife, you see, his ex-wife. Um, yes. That wasn't proven, and because she was unreliable. Yes, that was not proven. But the judge said, "Your reputation is so trashed by the things that have been proven that it doesn't matter that this other particular matter is potentially defamatory and and unproven because the things you have been found, oh, yeah, are considerably worse. Have totally trashed your reputation, so it doesn't matter." And the other thing was that the balance of probabilities, like you often hear that in a criminal case, you must establish guilt beyond reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. And in a civil case, it is on the balance of probabilities. But apparently... There's, there's another level, which yes. I discovered, which was more likely than not. Okay. I, there's, there was a midway between beyond reasonable doubt and balance of probability. Okay. Well... This case highlighted that there's a thing called the Brigginshaw standard, which is basically the more serious the allegation, then the higher the standard on the balance of probabilities that is required. So if you are accusing somebody of 
a relatively minor misdemeanor, balance of probabilities standard might be lower than if you were accusing somebody of murdering innocent Afghan people. So, Yeah, yeah I mean, I was, heard about defamation per se, which was you've been accused of something that was so uh, hideous mm. that by, uh, yeah, that automatically your reputation would be tarnished. Mm. So, you know, somebody could say something slanderous about you, but you'd have to prove that it caused damage. But there are certain things that if you were alleged to be mm-hmm. that would automatically reduce you in the eyes of your peers. Mm. So in this case, the judge can adjust the balance according to the gravity of the allegations. The more serious the claims, and it doesn't get more serious than murder, then the higher the bar. So yes... It was on the balance of probabilities, but it was a quite high bar of balance of probabilities because of the serious nature of the allegations. So anyway, so that's relevant because Peter Credlin is supporting Ben Robert Smith. And so hosing down the significance of the historic judgment and casting doubt on the reporting that led there. So Credlin is leading the charge. You know, I was in the swimming pool the other day at the unit at St. Catter and one of the elderly people that I'm friendly there with said, he really likes Peter Credlin. And I just said, okay. <laughs> just, mm-hmm. I, I didn't go any further. I just couldn't. Found it only Abbott? It, undoubtedly. So... She's saying, well, the judgment was just a civil law matter, lower burden of proof, and it wasn't a war crime tribunal. So Yet. go easy on Ben Robert Smith, is what Peter it's Credlin's not saying. Yet a war crime tribunal. Yes. And according to this article in Crikey, this was soon echoed across the media by the Australian's Greg Sheridan in a piece titled, this is the title of his. Peacely wrote, going woke risks destroying the Australian Defence Force as a real fighting force. Oh, for God's sake. Yep. Credlin wrote that even a criminal conviction wouldn't be enough for her, as the real fault for alleged crimes such as murdering a person under control fell with the Australian government and military bureaucracy. Quote, plainly a succession of risk-averse governments and military hierarchies expected too much of the SAS and the commandos whose extraordinary level of skill and professionalism was thought to render them less likely to suffer casualties than normal infantry, she wrote. Corey Bernardi took this argument a step further by declaring he cares nothing for the alleged crimes of Ben Robert Smith. He cited the trauma experienced by SAS soldiers as why Robert Smith shouldn't shouldn't be held responsible for his behaviour. And Steve Price rubbished a move to revoke Robert Smith's Victoria Cross. And it's the last bit here. Credlin said that, oh, and that there were lots of comments on her written piece and she said that the positive comments towards Robert Smith in the comments section of her articles proved the public was on the veteran's side. Well, I was at dinner on Saturday night with a mate of mine and he was not on Robert Smith's side. Mm -hmm. You know, he... He felt that it was a risky move that he actually took. And what he should have done was when the 
papers first published that stuff, he should have said, look, you can think what you like about me, but I know in my heart of hearts, I've done nothing wrong and stepped away from the camera. Mm. And all these idiots that were are still on his side now would have been on his side back then and they would have just moved on with it. But he, mm. he wanted to take the journos to task. It's blowing up in his face. Mm. There was a period there of successful defamation actions. And I think people got the feeling that this was an easy way to make money yeah. and it'll all seem too hard to defend and that newspapers and television shows will pay up rather than defend. And it's something like $30 million in legal fees. Mm. It's $35 million was what I saw today. They won't get all of it back. You never no, get all your fees. You, you know, it's, it's one of those things like, even if they do get a cost order against him and that sort of stuff, mm. well, you don't he's get not all be, he won't be able to pay it back. Yeah. And you know, the, the solicitors are going to continue to get their money. So the only ones, you know, the only ones who win out of this is, is the solicitors. Well, you know, say a similar story was around a fresh story of a similar type where the the media group knew they had a strong, you know, proof, mm -hmm. uh, but they knew that they had somebody with financial backing who could take them on. Even if you knew you were going to win, you'd probably just back off from doing it because the manpower and angst in your corporation just running this rock show for all these years, enormously draining on your organisation for one story. like. They'll just resort to cheaper, easier stuff rather than tackle the hard stuff. Even I think Chris Masters, who was the, one of the journalists involved, said something like that was like, it's a victory, but it's such yeah. a painful victory that it'll still scare off investigative journalism. Why would you do it if you can be dragged through a court for so many years on such an expensive exercise? Uh, and the other thing is uh, what they call it now. It's called discovery in the States. It's something else mm. over here. Discovering the documents, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you really don't want to have to turn over reams of documents mm. about your internal business. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. So. I don't know with what they would have had to discover. Yeah, with discovery and everything else on Robert Smith's. They, if mm. that was all public, then that would have been enough to actually put me off taking any sort of court action. Mm. You know, I'll put my hand up. I thought to myself when they, when the, when they, when they first published the article and that sort of stuff, I looked at them very warily and that sort of stuff. I thought to myself, nah, they're just trying to take him down. Mm. But as the case went on, I thought to myself, bloody hell, that sounds pretty bad. And then as the judgments come down and that sort of stuff, I thought to myself, okay, they were right to continue. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You know, Australia's involvement in all of these theatres of war, the mental just trashing of lots of young men is just one of the, just the whole cost of the exercise is just enormous. So many damaged people coming out of that. In the chat room, Alison says they should change where he is pointing an invisible gun in the war memorial to pointing it at his foot. 
good one. Yes. Yeah. And Bronwyn says, I conclude that I can only conclude Robert Smith is a psychopath who thought he could get away with bullying the media. He knew what he did. I think you're right there. Psychopath mm. would be a good description for him. So it just astounds me that support of a guy like that is divided on political lines. Hard right nutters at Sky, Credlin's, the Cory Bernardi's, Price, are, are coming out in favour of this guy. There'll be nobody on the left I, I coming out in favour of it. Back, no. back in the, probably the 90s, there was an active duty IRA cell that was shot and killed by the SAS in Gibraltar. And there was lots of hand-wringing about it. But this wasn't unarmed civilians. This was a group of terrorists who were on their way to plant a bomb. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they were unarmed at the time. They didn't actually have the bomb on them. But don't think it was as clear-cut as this is. Mm. Yeah, th this was captured civilians. Of war. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, captured people, yes, who, yeah. whose guilt or innocence was yet to be determined, yes. Yeah. But, but they, were no, they were no danger. No. And there was no, no obvious, yeah, it wasn't, a, I thought they were armed. Yeah, these yeah. people were detained. Yeah. Terrible well, culture in that. That guy that was kicked off that cliff was in handcuffs, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah, that's what they said. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but just the way that this can break down in in tribal political lines mm. these people are favouring because they feel they must defend the defence force at all costs. Well, I Just think have no credibility, these people. I think they're so playing tribal. to their audience more than yeah. anything else. And the, the, the Sky News audience is basically right-wingers and that sort of stuff who are out there saying that you know, they're probably all backing, bloody hell, I can't even remember his name, the former Victorian Premier who said that they should come back with conscription. Oh, Kennett. Yeah, Kennett. You know, mm. they're out there backing him. Which but is... it wouldn't have been that hard for them to say, okay, there's always a bad apple in a barrel somewhere, and this is one of them. But on the whole, our, our boys are good. I don't, you know, just, but they, they didn't have to go say boots and all they, in your they, support for him. They look to their tribe, don't they? Yeah. And their tribe decided that, they couldn't possibly. I wonder. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I think yeah. they've. The world, the world is black and white and he was white and they were black. Yeah. You do anything to those brown people. Well, exactly. You know, of course, News Corp, the right wing media doesn't have a problem in supporting. It was just a headline in the, because we've been. Hearing about Pricewaterhouse Coopers and the mischief <laughs> it was up to in advising the government, and uh, this article in the Australian by Nick Cater headline is "PwC a victim of woke capitalism scam." Mm. They're so obsessed with woke because they're just importing this American propaganda idea. They're just applying it everywhere. Yeah. So everything on the left is woke. And if yeah, you painted as woke, you can criticize it. And so 
What yeah, is it? So, so being a capitalist that put mm. profit over everything else is woke now, is it? No, it, no, woke, were... it's, it's, oh, wow. I didn't read. PwC, a victim of woke capitalism scam. I guess he's criticizing the capitalists who have turned on PwC as traitors to their class no. and, and as calling them woke. Yeah, Perhaps. he was also, the bit I read of it, which was in the lower part below the crease, was the report of the Bud Light and that sort of stuff in the US and how right. it had lost uh, its market capitalization because of its support for a transgendered person. Yeah. Only it didn't, but yes. Yeah, we did that story with the guy mm. shooting the Bud Light, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, you know, they just love to throw the word woke at things and even, mm. as I mentioned before, what was his name? Greg Sheridan, yes. um, yeah, going woke risks destroying the ADF as a real fighting force. They just keep latching onto these ideas and trotting them out and it's just a smaller and smaller group of people, hopefully, who have nothing better to do except watch Sky News and read The Australian all day who are falling <laughs> for this. And hopefully they're just growing older and dying because none of the young people are falling for this, surely. Hmm. <laughs> Okay, moving on, let's talk some religious stuff. Utah, primary schools, ban the Bible for vulgarity and violence. So upset. Mm. So a school district in the US state of Utah has removed the Bible from elementary and middle schools for containing vulgarity and violence, following a complaint from a parent that the King James Bible has material unsuitable for children. And this relates to Utah's Republican government passing a law last year banning pornographic or indecent books from schools. And that was always a risk of a backfire. So the group who kicked this off, Utah Parents United, mm -hmm. have put out a release that said, we appreciate this Christian news article's perspective on the Bible ban. This is retaliation. It is sad when religious texts are used as weapons in a culture war. Hmm. They, they really don't get irony, do they? No. So uh, it's happened in a few different states over there where they're basically creating laws because they're wanting to ban books and they just never stop to think, whoops, hang on a minute, there's some pretty crazy stuff in that Bible. They're trying to ban books that challenge anything that is not heteronormative. Yes. Uh, and so this is, yeah, effectively what it's been in place, put in place for, is mm. because there's, you know, My Two Dads, book for small children, which, oh my God, we can't have the normalization of gay parents. Mm. And, mm. And, and that's what these laws were put in place to prevent. And people have obviously gone, well, your Bible's a fairly shitty morality tale. Hmm. People don't understand. Bob Johnson, the father of a primary school student in the Davis School District, told CBS News that he opposes the Bible's removal. Quote, I can't think of what's in the Bible that you would have to take out of it. It's not like there's pictures in it, he said. Says someone who's never read a Bible in his life. That's right. Oh. The ironic thing, isn't it, that the, the non-religious atheists mm. often know the Bible way better than the religious ones do. Yeah. Still on religious news, here in Queensland, 
Wait for this, dear listener. There was an ALP state conference in Mackay. And from the Sunshine Coast district, one of our listeners is involved in this, they managed to get through a motion which was passed as a resolution that religious instruction be removed from lesson time to lunchtime or before or after school. Alternatively, that non-participating students continue with learning the curriculum. So either put it before or after school or during lunch, or alternatively, if people are going to take RI, the class keeps going and those kids miss out. That was part of a block of 170 resolutions that was passed unanimously at the Labor State Conference in Mackay. So all factions, left, right, middle, and whatever other ones are there, all agreed to these 170. And when they were sort of introducing the block of 170 resolutions, saying, well, here it is, there's 170 of them, the person doing that picked out three of the resolutions for special mention. And this religious instruction resolution was one of those three. So people knew it was there. And so that's good news that it's mm-hmm. actually officially part of Queensland Labor sort of policy, I guess. And now it's up to the parliament to actually pass laws that match its policy. So there's no guarantee that'll happen. Well, exactly. But it's a really, really good move. Great to see it happen. It was brilliant. Uh, Yes. So I think I remember a story about voluntary assisted dying. Yeah. Got through in Queensland through a conference like this Uh because it was put on the agenda, but it was put way down the bottom of the agenda. Yes. And they thought they'd never actually get to it. So they agreed to put it on the agenda because they thought it wouldn't actually be discussed. And they ended up rattling through so many agenda topics that they got to it and it, it ended up getting passed. That was voluntary assisted dying. So well done to the people involved. Don't know that you want me mentioning your name on this podcast, so I won't. But, uh, but well done. Really, really good work. And when you're next running for parliament, I will be up there handing out pamphlets on your behalf to help out and we'll be rustling up assistance for you. So, all right. That was really good. Really good move. That's mm. Queensland Labor. That was good news. Do you want the bad news? Mm. Mm. Federal, Federal Labor. not secure. <laughs> so, so there's going to be a national conference for Federal Labor and what they do is they put forward a draft national platform for discussion. And according to the Rationalist Society, this was released for consultation. And, and basically, the previous wording included the word secular. So it used to have a universal, free and secular public education as part of federal labour policy. And for some unknown reason, Labor's removed universal, free and secular out of the wording and watered it down. So, well, it doesn't have any, it's a a 111-page draft policy document does not include any mention of the word secular. So 
What's going on there? What is going on? Are they so scared of of the Christian vote still? Or are there people who are making these decisions who are religious? Yes. I think Trevor's probably hit the nail on the head. I think they're probably still scared of the religious vote. But God alone knows why, because, you know, the religious sure nutters. Well, the mm. religious nutters. She, she never, does. Yeah. The religious nutters are never actually going to vote for the Labor Party. No. So I don't understand why the Labor Party is trying to bend over backwards for them. Mm. So, so there was an article by Alistair Laurie, and he's also talking about this sort of draft policy, and he's sort of quite active in the LGBTIQ community. And he says the next conference is coming up in Brisbane in August this year. They've released this draft policy, and for LGBTIQ people, there's also bad news. So it used to have, in the 2021 version, had strengthened laws and expand initiatives against discrimination, vilification and harassment on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity or sexual or sex characteristics. So basically a policy to... Fairly strong wording against discrimination and harassment and vilification based on gender and sex. The new 2023 draft one, it doesn't have that at all. And it just talks in mealy-mouthed, wishy-washy words about supporting LGBTIQ, but has deleted what was quite strong words about, you know, expanding initiatives against discrimination and vilification. So so that's been taken out as far as it applies to the LGBTIQ community. But it's there for religious groups. So the sentiment that, you know, a, a policy that we should never allow vilification, discrimination based on religion is there, and it's there twice, but the same sentiment in relation to LGBTIQ people has disappeared. It's federal Labor. What can you say? What, what are they scared of there? Or what's going on? That's... They want to be seen as the rational right-wing party that accepts climate change, leaving the Greens as the only left-wing party. They, they do. They, they are trying to claw this centre-right emphasis on right position, ignoring the left. Mm -hmm. The Greens are going to have a field day at the next election with these sorts of things. When you're actually watering down what was previously strong language to protect LGBTIQ, you remove it, but you keep it there for the religious groups and you repeat it so it's there twice. How do you justify that? There's, there's no justification. I'll get hammered by these groups the next election. People lose a lot. They, the they, des they deserve to. Yeah. Hmm. 
In the chat room, Bronwyn says, don't forget Albo is a Catholic and not a Dan Andrews style one. That is true, Bronwyn. As he's always said, he was brought up on three faiths, the South Sydney football, the Labor mm-hmm. Party, Catholic Church. But, you know, he's got a girlfriend, doesn't he? Yes. Yes, yeah, so they're not married. No. Right, well, you know. How would Selective it Catholic. Exactly. You know, oh, he's, but, he's... but aren't they all? Yes. Of course they all are. That's, that's how you prove you are a Catholic, by being selective. Yeah. Probably doesn't eat fish on a Friday either. Yeah. He really worries me, Albo. There's just a lot of him being, the Kyle Sandilands wedding, just the way he tries to be a bit of the everyman sort of persona with journos and people now. more of an everyman than Scotty was, but. Yeah. He's more, but he's playing it up. He's more, yeah. I don't think he's a great deep thinker on these things. He's not, you know. It's, anyway, it's mm. it's one of those real tragedies that I kind of think he's not Shorten. Why why Shorten lost that last election? Mm. Because he actually took a very policy heavy manifesto to the public. Yeah, he had it all. He had it all lined up there. With you know, there could be no doubt what we were voting for. He couldn't sell it. He couldn't yeah. sell it. Mm. Yeah. All right. now, we've, now we've got, you know, this lily-livered little weak man who's out there trying to prove that he can be more right-wing than uh, Scott Morrison. Yeah. Just you know. signing up to all this AUKUS stuff, watering down this other stuff. It's yeah, not, I know. It's, it's really... It's refusing to change tax laws. Just... Yeah. What's the point of being there? God. What is the... Anyway, it wouldn't be an episode if we didn't talk about The Voice, and this is a news poll poll on The Voice, and I've got what we had previously from Essential Poll. So Essential, which is the one that we normally talk about when it comes to The Voice and polls, started off 65 in favour and is now down to 59. This one from News Poll, back in February, 56% was saying yes, and that is now down to 46, according to NewsPoll, if you can trust NewsPoll. Is NewsPoll News Limited? Don't know who owns it, but it certainly appears in the News Corp stable of outlets. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the – yeah, so that's a significant drop in support. 46, 43, and 11 don't knows uh, in terms of percentages. Just the breakdown, as you'd expect, Greens more likely than the Coalition to be in favour of a yes vote. Females slightly more in favour than males. Older people less likely to be in favour than younger people. In the regions, it's the metropolitan people who are voting yes. In the regions, more likely to say no. And they had an education category here. So university educated people, 56% yes, 35% no. But if they did not have any tertiary qualifications, then it was just 41% yes and 45% no. Not really a surprise there. That's just sort of the breakdown. 
is pretty much what we'd expect, but mm-hmm. the whole the thing age. seems to be tightening up a bit. Sorry, did you want to look at that again? Or? Well, no, the age, you know, you've got 18 to 34s, 65% in favour. Mm. 35 to 49, 53% in favour. 50 to 64, down to 33%. Mm. And those that are 65 and older, it's 30%. Mm. So it's one of those things. I just think that it's a big factor. It is. Mm. I don't think there's anything you can do about it, though. No. <laughs> no you must have got a few more don't knows in the 18 to 35 year old category. Mm. So mm. consistently, overall, anyway, the don't knows are 11%, according to this poll. So there's still room for this to go the other way. Mm. Not over the line by any means. So. We'll see where that no, ends up. Let's say, let's say that half of that breaks in either direction, then you're still going to end up with 51% in favour and then you've got 49% opposed. Now, you don't know what it's going to say. You know, this is a presumably a national poll. Mm. So you could end up with a majority, yes, across the whole country, but not in a majority of states. Mm. Mm. See how it pans out. Exactly. Okay. All right. So that's the latest news poll on that. Oh, where are we up to? 817. Bronwyn said, news poll is owned by YouGov. British Polling Company. Thank you, mm-hmm. Bronwyn. Okay. News poll are generally well respected when it comes to sort of voting intentions, etc. as much as any polling company is, I think. Mm-hmm. So, but there's sort of a fair difference between them and... Cur- curious with their name, given they mm. use poll. Yeah. But anyway, take polls with a grain of salt, especially that poll. You know, like when Donald Trump got elected, the polls Brexit. did not show it. Brexit. There were situations where people felt like if they were to answer truthfully, truthfully that they liked Donald Trump or they were in favour of Brexit, that they would be frowned upon by the pollster. Mm-hmm. And so they lied or voided the pollsters. I guess, refusing to answer. And we got a, very much a distorted response. And this is the sort of topic that is ripe for that same sort of situation. Yep. Very much so. Hmm. I was talking last week about, you know, just the global south and, and how, and this was to do with Russia and I was trying to say that there's a lot of the world that is still thinks favorably of Russia and Putin, for example, and that African, that South African guy. And I was sort of talking about multipolar world and there's just a significant lot of people who don't think how we think in the West. And that sort of correlates with the issue of, I'm just going to share my screen here because I forgot to put it on the on PowerPoint, this, if you can see it, is a map of the world and there's countries in green there highlighted and they're all countries that recognise Palestine and that sort of division where you've got Australia, New Zealand, North America, Europe, the West, if you like, on the one side is also that sort of Russian, pro-Russian divide as well. That, well that's the kind of... Sweden? Yeah, Sweden stands out in Europe. 
there would be exceptions within that, but that sort of broad stroke is how the world is dividing up on a number of issues and on things of like Eastern Europe. Yeah. So qu- quite a significant number of people or number of countries, hundred yeah, that's right. There's 193 member states of the United Nations and 72% recognized the state of Palestine. So Mexico was the most recent. But so, oh, I was about to say none on the Security Council, but of course Russia is. Yes. As it's China. Yeah, you got the PRC and the Russians from <laughs> the permanent members of the Security Council. So you know, the, I think the tides have turned against the state of Israel for a lot of people over the last five years. Just increasingly these scenes you see of what's happened to the Palestinians. It's just a... Look at you go, with all sympathy to what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust and Second World War, the situation that it's at at the moment is not a good one. So I think they're just increasingly losing support. You don't agree, Scott? No, I, I think you're right. It's, you know, it's, if you look at, the, if you look at that map there, it, it very clearly shows that the majority of the world is on the, is on the side of the Palestinians. Hmm. You know, it's... it's the only thing that I would say against that is if, you know, does anyone honestly believe that if the PLO was as well armed as the Israeli defense force, would they stop? Would they show the same level of restraint the Israeli defense force has, or would they drive the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea? It'd be a mess, no doubt. Yeah. It'd be awful. Yeah. It would, that would not be good. No, it wouldn't be good. But it's just... I agree with you. What the, yeah. what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians mm. is wrong. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, that's a split up of the world that we're going to see on a lot of topics over the years to come is kind of in line with what we're seeing there on that map there. So Essential Lord Don says, did Trevor write the article below what the West gets wrong about China? You're looking at my notes on the screen there. <laughs> yes. You're supposed to be looking at the map, Essential Lord Don. So... You're your fault for showing it off. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So the answer is no, I did not write the article, but I'm going to now hit you with a whole bunch of clips that I threatened to do earlier because it's time to talk China, 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 China. Okay. Let me just... Uh, like a bull in a China shop. Yeah, that's it. Let me just bring this across so I can give my introductory remarks. So I came across this guy called John Thornton. You guys ever heard of John Thornton? Only what you mentioned of it. Right. Okay. All right. According to the writer of this particular piece, Thornton is probably the single American who best knows the Chinese system. That's a big statement to start with. This, this is the claim that John Thornton, who we've never heard of before, is probably the single American who best knows the Chinese system. He is a personal friend of most of the Chinese leadership including Xi Jinping. In 2003, he became the first non-Chinese full professor at, is it Tsinghua University? Since the establishment of the PRC. I'm thinking, okay, communist lefty, must be. He's also one of America's foremost business leaders, having been co-president of Goldman Sachs. That gives him some right-wing credentials. 
and seating on the boards of companies such as Ford, Intel, ICBC, China Unicorn, IMG, B-SkyB, DirecTV, and News Corp. Like, that's some pretty strong credentials for a power player. I've never heard of the guy. I thought that's a really interesting CV. So, so this is going to take a little while. And this is the final topic that we're going to talk about is what he had to say on a, on a range of things. So I'm going to go through some of these clips and, and see what you guys think of what he had to say. So just to sort of beef up his credentials of how close he is to Xi Jinping, I'll play this one here to start with. Up here it comes. To the extent that any external people or even internal people can have an impact on the Chinese system and the, the evolution of the Chinese politics and all that, for sure, you'll have more influence if you've got the relationship and you've built the trust. I once had a, in 2007, Xi Jinping for a short period of time was party secretary of Shanghai. And at that point in time, I, I, I'd known him for about 10 years. And he asked me to do a project for him, which was how to ensure Shanghai remains or, or becomes and remains a global financial center. And so I went away to do this project and I came back to have dinner with him to report. And it just happened to coincide with, I was writing a very short article for Foreign Affairs magazine. It was maybe 20 pages long. It took me 14 months to write it because I wanted to be sure it was accurate. And so there were, there were four of us for dinner. Xi Jinping, myself, the head of finance in Shanghai who had not met Xi Jinping, who was a mentee of mine, and then a friend, close friend of mine who's also close to Xi Jinping. So I happen, Xi Jinping and I happened to arrive first. And he says to me, so what have you been doing recently? I said, well, I've been writing this article on the political evolution of China. I was, that's very interesting. He asked me a question, I answer him. And I'm, th I'm thinking, he's just being courteous. We sit down, he keeps asking questions. For four hours, all we discussed was what I thought I was learning about the political evolution of China. We never touched the topic of Shanghai as a global financial center, and their two friends didn't say a single word. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I mention that story is because, because so I have a, I quite a good understanding in that one area of how he thinks. But the reason, okay, so I just want to play that just to set the scene of somebody who's clearly a, a big hitter. Like, my goodness me, the guy was co-president of Goldman Sachs, and his best mates was Xi Jinping in two thousand and seven, and known him for ten years, and has that sort of you know contact with him. So, so that was the first one, just as a more of a credentials sort of setting piece. You guys have any thoughts so far on that at all or anything strike uh, you from that? I was going to say American businesses have been best buddies with authoritarian leaders around the world for years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just, just because this one happens to nominally espouse socialism. Yes. As long as it's a authoritarian state that is going to do the corporation's bidding. Yes. I, I think the businesses are quite happy to get into bed with them. Yeah. Yep. Good point. 
let's let's talk about this one here. So this is about understanding Xi Jinping. So which you guys would know some of this stuff, but it's worth reflecting on. I want to start back in 2012 when Xi Jinping came to power. And I, I, this is a premier that, that you have watched and studied and know. Help us understand who he is and as a leader, what he wants. Okay. So this can make me very unpopular. So Xi, Xi Jinping, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier. I want you to keep your minds open for a second and try to imagine this. And, and some of you may know this. So Xi Jinping's father was the youngest vice premier in China in 1959 when he was 46 years old. And Xi Jinping was six years old. 1962, Xi Jinping's father was purged by Mao. So Xi Jinping, between age six and nine, his father's right in the center of the power structure. And suddenly he's out altogether. Four years later, 1966, is the Cultural Revolution. Xi Jinping is 13 years old. The father and the mother sent to prison. Two years later, Xi Jinping at age 15 is sent to the countryside, sent down youth. So he lives in the countryside from age 15 to age 22. So for those seven years, those seven extremely formative years, He's living the dirt, dirt, dirt poor existence of the Chinese farmer with both parents in prison. Older half-sister commits suicide. So there's Xi Jinping as a, in his teenage college years. By the way, of course, not being educated. There's no schooling, there's no university. And, you know, what is the future? During that period, he applies 15 times to be in the Communist Party. He gets turned down 15 times. Eventually, of course, Mao dies. Deng Xiaoping comes back into power. Deng Xiaoping brings the father out from prison. Xi Jinping is now free to go to university and start his life. The father, meanwhile, Deng Xiaoping makes him the governor of Guangdong province. Guangdong province is the province right across from Hong Kong. And Xi Jinping's father is the individual who goes to Deng Xiaoping and says, we should make this a special economic zone, an experiment with market economics. So his father is the individual who, who goes to Deng Xiaoping and says, so that's kind of the, the first spark of the reform and opening period. Later on, when Deng Xiaoping essentially removes Hu Yobang from power, then Tiananmen Square happens, Xi Jinping's father is the only one of that generation who tells Deng he's wrong and he gets banished again. So I want you to think about the sort of the strength of character of somebody who goes through what I just described and comes out the other side of it pretty much intact, stays in the system, rises up to the position he's in. I have four children, the youngest of whom is a sophomore in the university. This past semester, he had a course on the Cultural Revolution. And the final paper was, write a paper on what you think the impact was on the sent down youth of the Cultural Revolution. And so my son interviewed six or seven sent down youth, half of whom are living in this country and half of whom are living in China. And of course, in his paper, he basically says, look, you can't, 
you can't generalize for, for 17 million people on the basis of talking to seven, but these are what these seven people told me. And then he says, you know, it's interesting to speculate. What was the impact of the, on the sent down youth of those sent down youth who stayed in the system and got to the top of the system like Xi Jinping. And my son says the following things in his paper, which I agree with. He says, the first thing is if you're Xi Jinping, when he says our single highest priority is to improve the lives of the ordinary people. When he says that, this is a deeply felt personal, emotional comment. This is not a conceptual comment. And this is not, you know, any of the U S leaders in my lifetime, none of them live that, that life. And so when they talk about improving the lives of ordinary Americans, this is an intellectual concept. They believe it to more or less extent. For Xi Jinping, this is a highly personal comment. That's number one. The second one is if you live through the insanity of the cultural revolution and you're a leader of China, priority one through five or one through 10 is social and political stability. So those two things to me are the most defining characteristics of this person. The third one being Xi Jinping's desire for China as a country to reestablish itself. Remembering that in 18 of the last 20 centuries, China was the world's most, was the world's largest economy. It's only in the last two centuries, 19th and 20th, where it wasn't so. So in the Chinese mind, they're reestablishing re the norm. They're not, they're not sort of a, in Graham Allison's or Graham, yeah, Graham Allison's phase coming into a pre-existing system of setting. Any thoughts on that? No, I don't disagree with what he said. Mm. Like, you know, I agree with, I agree with the history and that sort of stuff. It, it makes sense compared to what I've learned from podcasts and all that sort of stuff about Xi's life. He did actually, he was right there, you know, with, with the cultural revolution, he really did get kicked around mm. you know, and he had to live a dirt poor existence for a number of years. It was only when his father, it was only once Mao died and that sort of stuff. And his father got pulled out of prison that he could actually start his life. Mm. He's had a life experience that none of the American leaders have had. That's I agree. Sure. Mm. So... You it know, doesn't give him the right to invade Taiwan, though. But <laughs> no, but well, he doesn't have to invade. Sorry? It's part, he doesn't have to. It's already part of China, as far as he's concerned. As far as he's concerned, it's part of China, but the reality is it's not part of China. What, a, what about Tibet, then? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just thought it interesting. Three things. Poverty, addressing that, stability, and reestablishing of the norm. And I do think he missed out one other one. Yes. President for life. President for life. Yeah, well. Which is all his. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about power. It's, it's all about him maintaining the status quo of China and all that type of thing. And, you know, you have, mm. you know. No doubt he's got his own ego. Oh, for sure. He'd have mm. to. You know, mm. I don't think anyone would ever, would ever make themselves president for life that didn't have an ego. Mm. In the chat room, Bronwyn said, I've been scanning Thornton's Wikipedia article and he has some other rather concerning friendships, in inverted commas, with the likes of Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. That's what I think finds, that's what I think Bronwyn makes this guy interesting, is that he's clearly part of the right, 
Oh, he's got friends in the right. Um, he, he, he's a fan of authoritarians, full stop. Yeah, well, there you go, yes. So so it's it's not like he's a card-carrying lefty. He's coming out with a lot of stuff which will be quite positive about China. Uh, so it's the interesting part about this guy is he's fully aware of power in the right of politics and business, yet has an admiration that is coming through for Xi and the Chinese system, which we'll get to in a moment, because I've uh, I've been interested in this idea of the meritocracy of the Chinese Communist Party and 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 how you have to go through a process to get to the top, which weeds out idiots. Whereas in our system, and in particularly it seems the American system, has almost become a system designed to filter out good people. And only allow idiots in. Is that because they're writing poetry to get into the civil service? The communist poetry that we mentioned last week? Is that what you mean? No, no. Oh. Is it China, Chinese civil service historically, you had to write poetry to... Right. You had to prove your communist sort of credentials, I guess. Yeah. So, so anyway, have a listen to this, because bear in mind with this one about the meritocracy of what's involved in the Chinese Communist Party compared to the incompetence of, in this case, the Americans, if you like, in terms of just intellectual ability. Play this one. It's a little bit shorter. China's Communist Party is essentially the meritocratic elite. In the same way that if you look back through Chinese history, there was an emperor, and then there was the kind of the Mandarin class running the country. That's essentially what you have at the moment. And... You don't get into the Chinese Communist Party if you're not very able. You don't get to Tsinghua University if you're not very able. You know, 10 million kids a year take the, take the national examinations to go to university. Top 3,000 of those go to Tsinghua University. 3,000 get admitted and 3,000 go. And so, and, and Tsinghua University accounts for 50% of the leadership of the country. So... So that the examination-based culture, which has existed for 2,000 years, still exists. And essentially, that's what drives the, the input into all these institutions. And so to put it in, in, in the vernacular, if you get to the top of the Chinese system, there's no chance you're not very smart and very able. And the only institution in this country, which is to me is at all like it, and when I tell them this, it drives them crazy, the only institution in this country that's all like the Chinese Communist Party is the U.S. military, which is to say that if you and I were 18 years old and we went to West Point together, and we went in the military and we stayed in the military, one day we're four-star generals. We've known each other for, you know, whatever it is, 40 years, and we're sitting around the same table. That's the Chinese system. And so they know each other intimately. They've had real jobs. They failed or they succeeded. If they succeeded, they went ahead. If they failed, they failed. And like all big organizations, there, of course, is plenty of rough justice and infighting and all the rest of it that goes on in every corporation in the United States and anywhere else. But that's basically the system. So I think the word communist kind of gets into the, gets in, gets into the mental way of Americans understanding what you're dealing with. Uh, it's not a communist system, period. Which doesn't mean they don't have, when they talk about common prosperity, for example, you might say that's the equivalent of trying to fix income inequality that we would talk about. But the other day, 
another Chinese was saying to me, the capitalist system is essentially a divide and conquer system. The Chinese modernization is a unifying system. And so there, so Xi Jinping, to go back to him, he is determined, although they haven't figured out how to do this yet, that common prosperity is for real. They're proud of the fact they've lifted 800 million people out of poverty. Because that's the most ever in history by a long, long way. And they're proud of that. And they think those people ought to continue to advance. And that this, you know, there's big, big differences between the wealthy and the poor. It's just, it's too much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why you seem sort of cracking down now on some of that. I just find this interesting insight. I think I, I think this guy knows who he's talking about. And I think it's just an interesting insight into how the Chinese system, it's quite different, but it works for them. And we don't get enough of this in our mainstream media. So I think it's valuable. I've got a bunch of others, but I won't run you through all of them, except to say that in one of the clips, he describes that John Kerry, former US, US state of um, presidential Secretary candidate, of state, was yeah, and he had a senior role. Yeah. He was in a meeting with Xi Jinping, and Ping said, "Hey, I've got this idea." And he described the Belt and Road system. And John Kerry said, oh, that's a good idea. Can we join you and do that with you? And Xi Jinping said, yeah, sure, no problem. And then John Kerry went and tried to get it through some treasury mandarin grabbed him straight away and said, forget that idea. It's never going to happen. We're not touching it. So it never actually went to Obama. But essentially, the Belt and Road system was described to John Kerry, who asked to be part of it, was told, sure, but then they never went ahead with it. And that John Kerry described that as one of the great regrets of his life, that he never pursued that. And see, had the Yanks got involved in, had the Yanks been involved with the Belt and Road Initiative right from word go, then they would have been able to control it. They would have been able to also have the year of the Chinese Communist Party and that sort of stuff. They may well have been able to talk them down from the invasion of Taiwan, which I know what, hasn't what, happened yet. What it invasion? Hasn't, Did it I hasn't something? happened yet, but they are threatening it. If you had the Yanks on site, if the Yanks had the years of the Chinese Communist Party, they may well have been able to talk them out of it. All I've said is... Taiwan's part of China. I know. That's what they've said. And that's, and and that's what, also, and what that's they've what, also said. And that's what America has said. And that what that's they've what also Australia said is that they've also said is they do not rule out the use of military force to bring them back online. The other thing that was in this clips that I'll just mention as well was he said the Chinese get really angry that people don't listen to what they say and instead they listen to so-called China experts who interpret what they say. Which is a, very true. Yeah. And a classic example, and these China experts are wrong, and a classic example of someone who's a China expert who's wrong was Kevin Rudd. Really? Yes, specifically mentioned by this in this clip as well. So, And his theory was also in, this, in these clips 
There'll be a link in the show notes to where you can watch the whole thing on YouTube, was that China was basically wanting not to be a hegemon itself, that it didn't, once America's displaced, it just wants a multipolar world and not one dominated by a single civilization, in his opinion. So, anyway. Stone's opinion? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, that was how he saw them. So, anyway, I thought that was an interesting character to introduce to you. If you haven't heard of that guy before, you know about him now. <laughs> what has he said about Taiwan? There was nothing in that clip about it. I'd have to okay. investigate what other stuff to find out. So, I think that's about it for the moment. I could get on to other things, but do that for another time, I think. And if you guys have something pressing that you would like to talk about, we could wind it up. No, I will go away and read about him because I think what you have shown me is very interesting. Hmm. I am. Yeah. Joe, you're looking very skeptical there. Eh? Like, you're just like traveling in your bloody propaganda bullshit. Like, God, it's sake. One of those things, like, I mean, I can understand where he's coming from saying that the Chinese people don't want democracy because they've, you know, they've never had it. So as a result, they don't really have a long-term view of it. But just across the Taiwan Strait, Taiwan has evolved into a democracy. Okay, if they only knew about democracy. No, then, not oh. saying that. I'm simply saying that is why they have never moved into that sort of world realms because they've never known it. Now, there, there was just there was something there that, that I've got to read. Yeah, go on. Well, well you're saying because they've never known it, they've never moved into it. That but, is something that are, that's just one of my theories. It's been kicking around in my head for a long time. Right. It's like the, It's like, you know, Russia has very, very comfortably moved back into a dictatorship under Putin because they've never known a real democracy. Okay. There is a clip here that's relevant to that, which I hadn't Mm. mentioned, which let me find this this one then, which is how much they understand about the USA. This this one is kind of relevant to what you were just saying. So let me play this one. What are the three key things that you and all of us could do to help the Chinese people to gain the understanding of the world. And I think that's the key to world peace. And if we get their mind share, Chinese people will be on our side. I am very sure about that. Thank you so much. Okay, a couple of things. First of all, I, you know, I've been teaching at Tsinghua now for 20 years. So I, I deal with and know a lot of young Chinese from that and from other ways. And, and of course, I'm dealing in a sense with it's self-selected. I'm dealing with the most educated people. But at least among that group, I don't know a single one of them who doesn't know what's going on in the outside world. Notwithstanding your comments about Chinese control of media, 100% of them are connected 100% of the time, just like you and I are to the, to the world's media. So that's my first comment. My second comment is, I know that this, this line of, you know, it's, it's the United States versus the Chinese Communist Party, not the Chinese people. It, it, this has been a sort of a, a way of looking at the world that's been perpetrated recently by a lot of the particular Republican leaders. And it sounds good. But in fact, inside the Chinese system, as I said earlier, even to this, in fact, even to this day, 
I remember when I was teaching my very first year, I asked my students, what do you want to do when you finish? And of course, if you, had you asked that question 10 years earlier, 100% of them would have said, I want to be in the government. When you asked it when I was teaching, this goes back 20 years ago. You guys aren't even then, I'll just, 20 years I'll just ago, fast forward a little bit. By I which can. I mean a whole raft of activities, but what it basically means in its essence is Chinese people spending time here and vice versa. I'd like to see a lot more going the other way. I think that's the most powerful way to make a difference over time. And I think it does make a difference. We, we know. I skipped over the bit where it basically says that China spends a lot more time and understands America, the USA, much more than the USA understands China. Um, I don't doubt that. So, yeah, which was a, another interesting aspect of it. Well, I, I but, think the world understands the US a lot better than the US understands anywhere else. Yeah, just yeah because, absolutely. Because the culture comes out of the USA, uh, yeah, mm. Hollywood. But you see, that lady's question at the beginning was, if only the Chinese could understand and know about us, they would be on our side. And that was, was interesting because she sounded Asian to me. She did, yes. She did sound Asian. I agree. Yeah. Which sounded a little bit like what you were heading in the direction, Scott, where you were saying if they only knew democracy, they would have taken it up. And well, then they just look, if you just look back at the Tiananmen Square protest, mm -hmm. now that was a uprising and that sort of stuff, and they were basically demanding democracy. But they... They were not prosperous. And I, no, I, they the, the, the Chinese that I know now are prosperous. I, you know, I know people over here, and they were saying what a wonderful life they had back in China. Yeah, because they can. They exactly, and th th that was the whole point. Like the the deal that was struck between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party was, you know, we'll give you a beautiful flat screen television if you don't ever protest again. So that well, is, well, well, we've got a system and we'll improve your lifestyle mm -hmm. if we're, and, and to a, basically, to a degree. yeah. And it's okay. So there's this article here from Harvard business review and sort of dealing with these issues in that kind of along those lines, but, but the Chinese people largely, and there are polls to show this and I was looking at one of those earlier on. Again, we're basically, the Chinese people are happy with the political system they have. And I don't they, doubt that. And, you know, and I don't and doubt with, that because they've got a good very reason. good life. Mm. What's that? I don't doubt that because they've yeah. got a very good life. Yeah. And, and to them, okay, it's not democracy as we know it and mm. it's authoritarian, but that doesn't make it illegitimate in their no, eyes. And I agree. Yeah. And... The other one was that, you know, people have assumed that economics and democracy are two sides of the same coin, that successful economies go with democracies. And that is not necessarily the case. So mm. they don't have to go hand in hand. So, so you can have a successful economy without a democracy. You can have the people who accept... Are, are autocracies. Yep. You can have people who accept an authoritarian political system as the best that suits them. And it can be legitimate. So, yeah, um, the, the problem is the, it's the whole benevolent dictator. Mm. The, the best form of government is a benevolent dictator because they make mm. 
good decisions. They're not worried about a re-election. They're mm. making long-term strategic decisions. Mm. But the problem is all benevolent dictators in the end become despots. Mm. Mm. Uh, and it's all about personal gain rather than the betterment of the people. So mm. if you, if you can find a rare example of someone who really is caring about the people and isn't insulated. The problem is our democracies are achieving the same result for the oligarchs at the moment. Yes. So, so with donation laws and other factors in play, our, our democracies have become are, are rewarding an, an unelected dictatorship at the same time. So they're not democracies, so, really. Yes. Because they don't reflect the will of the people. Yes. Just because you're holding an election gives the, the pretense of a democracy. But if the substance isn't there, you don't have one. So, yeah. Bit, bit like Labour and the Liberals on secrets. Hmm. Yes. There we go. All food for thought, dear listener. Just trying to expand our ways of thinking about the world. So, hope you enjoyed that little look at China and its way of thinking from a guy who's got an interesting CV. Hmm. Right. Well, that's definitely it. Done and dusted. We'll be back next week to talk about stuff. Got to do a book review again soon. Got to talk to Paul about that. Meanwhile, have a good week. Talk to you next week. Bye for now. Then it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. Good night.